And this morning we're looking at James chapter 1, verse 16 through verse 18. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 16, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His word. O gracious God in heaven, we are truly mindful of the comfort that Your word brings to us Your word is truth, your word is wise, it enlightens our hearts and our minds, it directs us in our paths and the way that we should go. And as we come to this passage this morning, we pray, Father, that your spirit would truly open our hearts and our minds to see the truth that is revealed to us here, the truth about who you are, and the great and the good God that you are. And so we ask, Lord, that as your word goes forth in the power of the Spirit, that it would truly find within our hearts that rich and fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Sometimes very simple things can be also very profound. Even a simple prayer that is taught to a child. God is good. God is great. And we thank Him for our food. doesn't really rhyme, but it's a little prayer that was meant to, uh, to teach that we should give thanks to God, not only for our food, but really for all things. Because He's a good God and He's a great God. And so with this simple prayer, children are taught about the attributes or the character of God. God's goodness is simply the way that He acts kindly toward His creation. And His greatness doesn't just mean that God is great and awesome as He surely is, but God's greatness is also rooted in His almighty power and authority, or we might say His sovereignty. And so a simple prayer to help us remember God's goodness and His sovereignty. But things happen. Terrible things. Painful things. Tragic and even horrifying things. Things that may cause us to question the truth of this prayer and the attributes of God that it confesses. On our passage this morning, James warns his readers and us to be on on guard, to be careful not to lose sight of these very simple truths. 
We remember that those to whom James is writing have, uh, were facing persecution. Many have fled from Jerusalem and the, the region of Palestine because of persecution that broke out against the early church. And even now as they've uh, fled to these far distant communities, they're facing other various trials like economic hardships and as well as being tempted by all the things in the world and even their own sinful lusts and desires as James has already addressed. And so because of these difficult times, James seeks to remind them that God is great and God is good. And this reminder is necessary because it's precisely when people are faced with difficult times that the goodness and the greatness of God are called into question. And so we hear of of such doubts all the time, whether it's uh, in response to a major catastrophe like a, a hurricane or a tornado, or perhaps something more personally tragic, a freak accident and a, a diagnosis of terminal illness, or even or any event or experience that causes intense pain and suffering, whether it's physical or emotional. Now those who doubt and are skeptical to begin with are usually the ones to first uh, fire the first shots of complaint. And how can a good God allow this to happen? How can a good God allow pain and, and suffering in the world? If, if God is so good, how can He allow cancer to wreak havoc in our lives and the lives of our loved ones? How can a good God allow accidents that leave people maimed or even pay, take people's lives? How can a good and great God allow things like war and famine, disease and poverty? If this is what a good God does then I don't want any part of it. And so with comments like that, the heart grows harder and colder and the skepticism only increases. In fact, these doubts will often be tossed out toward Christians as a way to uh, attack their faith and and undermine it. People will taunt, you know, if God is good, then He must not be all-powerful and sovereign because these terrible things are happening and And it seems like God is unable to do anything to stop them. Now, He may be a good God, but He's weak and powerless. Of course, the point here would then be, why would you believe in such a a weak God? But of course, the other assault is even more dangerous. If your God is so great, if He is all-powerful and sovereign, well, then He must not be a very good God. Because it means that He has the power and the ability to stop all these terrible things, but He doesn't. He may be almighty, but He sounds like He's mean and cruel. Why would you believe in in such a God? These taunts create a, a false dilemma as they seek to pit God's attributes of goodness and, and sovereignty against each other. From their perspective, God can only be either good or He can only be sovereign. He can't be both. But this false dilemma is truly false. You see, those who set up this dilemma, they lack wisdom to understand the depths of God's goodness. They lack wisdom to understand the comfort that a a sovereign, all-powerful God brings. 
And they lack wisdom about the root cause of all evil, suffering, and pain in the world. As James has previously made known that such things come from the sinfulness of mankind and the sin, misery, and death brought into the world by Adam's sin. And so doubters and skeptics lack this wisdom because they lack the faith that brings this kind of wisdom. But note carefully here the warning that James gives in verse 16. These doubters and skeptics are not just out there in the world, but they're in here, in the church, among Christians. And so James warns, do not be, de- be deceived, my beloved brethren. And James isn't warning unbelievers, he's warning believers, even beloved brothers in Christ. Warning them that they shouldn't be deceived or led astray by such doubts about God's character. Now the point made by James' words here is quite significant. Because as we've seen, just as Christians aren't immune from trials and temptations... We're not immune from struggling with doubts. Even doubts about such simple and basic things like God's goodness and God's greatness. We may wonder, how can that be? How could we possibly doubt those things? Well, reflect for a moment on the trials, the temptations, the tragedy, the suffering, the pain that you've experienced in your own lives or in the lives of those around you. No one is untouched by such things. I wouldn't be surprised if each of you, in the heat of the moment, in the midst of the fiery and painful ordeal, struggled with doubts or even questioned in your hearts, does God really care about me? How could He let this happen? Where is His goodness at this time? It seems so far and distant. Why didn't He keep this from happening to me or those whom I love? Have you ever ever struggled with these kinds of, of doubting questions? Even if just for a brief moment. Truly such things are not uncommon for believers. You see, we're only finite creatures. And we don't know all that God knows. And so we don't always know or understand what He's doing in our lives and why our great and good God allows these kinds of things to happen. And so in such weakness, it's common to raise questions and even struggle with doubts. But friends, it's one thing to struggle for a time with these doubts in the midst of a crisis, but it's quite another to let these doubts gain a foothold in your heart and sweep you away, leading to despair. And so this is why James is giving this warning here. He's warning them to not be deceived, not to be led astray by these doubts, not to let them get rooted in their hearts, leading them into deeper doubt and despair. For it's at these times that we need to diligently seek wisdom from God by way of His Holy Spirit and through the truth of His Word to bring us back to what we know to be true, to remind us of the strong foundation upon which we stand and have our hope, to show what some have known, trusted, and believed even since childhood, 
that God is good and He is great. We overcome these doubts when we cling to the truth of God's Word and what it reveals to us about God's character. And this is exactly what what James goes on to do. Reminding his readers of of God's glorious attributes. And, And the first of these is that God is surely good. Now he's already touched on this in the verses just before this, establishing God's character as good, holy, and righteous when he said in verse 13 that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so the point that he's making there is that evil has no place in God's being. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, it's a a chapter that is on God, says this, There is but one living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. We see here, among many other glorious perfections of God's character... That God is truly and abundantly good. And James emphasizes this when he says that God is the Father of lights. That He is the Father of lights because He Himself is light. 1 John 1.5, John says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now light in this sense refers to God's radiant glory and His his moral perfection and His pure holiness. There's no darkness at all. That is, there's no spot or blemish of evil or sin in Him. God is perfectly pure in holiness. And therefore, He's also perfectly pure and good. And Jesus makes this most clear when He says in Mark 10, saying, No one is good but one that is God. Friends, if God were not good, then He would not be God. We noted before that God's goodness is the way that God acts kindly toward His creation. And the psalmist declares this in Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and do good. Because God is good, He does good. He does good because He is good. God is good, and as we'll see, from Him only good dwells. But James reveals another important aspect of God's character, His his attributes. He isn't only good, but despite the doubters and skeptics, He's also, at the very same time, He's great. That is, He's all-powerful and sovereign. God's sovereignty refers to His power and His authority to exercise that power as He wills and purposes. 
God's sovereignty means that God is always in control of all things. In fact, nothing happens outside of God's command or the purpose of His most holy and perfect will. And this is the truth that the prophet Isaiah declares about God in Isaiah 46 verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God is sovereign. And He's all-powerful. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is outside of God's control. Now we know God is truly sovereign. Because He's the one who created all things in heaven and on earth. By the word of His power, He even created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so this is another way that we can understand James' words in in verse 17, that God is the Father of lights. God is the Creator of the great heavenly lights. And He maintains power and authority over them, even to the point where God was able to answer the prayer of Joshua in the midst of his battle with the Amorites in in Joshua 10 when uh, the sun stood still and the moon stopped so that they could finish that battle in daylight. And it was by God's sovereign power that the sun actually moved back 10 degrees as a sign to show King Hezekiah that he would recover from his illness which he thought was unto death. And so as the creator and father of the heavenly lights, God has sovereign power and authority over them. And if God has power and authority over the sun, the moon, and the stars, well then certainly He has power and authority over everything else that He has created here on earth. And Jesus tells us that not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the purpose and plan of God. And even when it seems like <clears throat> chaos reigns and our world is, is falling apart all around us, we know that God is in control. Again, as we sang in Psalm 46, that though the earth shakes, the mountains crumble, the seas roar, though the nations rise up against one another and nations totter on the brink, though our enemies gather around us seeking our destruction, in the midst of it all, we're called to be still. And remember that God is God. And that He is sovereignly in control of all things. And so with a good God, and a great sovereign God in control of all things, well then truly we can have the hope, comfort, and even peace in the midst of the most trying times. As we confess the truth that Paul uh, reveals in, in Romans 8, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And here, all things means all things, each and everything. Nothing is excluded. This is what James wants his readers, what, this is what he wants us to, to remember. So we don't get swept away. By doubts, we remember the truth revealed about God's character in His Word that God is good and that God is sovereign and great. But there's a third important aspect of God's character 
<clears throat> which James addresses here, when again he says in verse 17, the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James is here speaking of the immutability of God, which simply means that God can't and that God doesn't change. And James is making a comparison to the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And we know that they each go through uh, cycles as we observe them from our earthly perspective. And they appear to change, to shift, and to move with the passing of time over a day or a month or even a year. They change and they show variation of size and intensity. And furthermore, light from the sun or a full moon will cast a shadow. And as it again appears from our perspective, as the sun moves, well, the shadow will also move. And so there is a constant shifting of shadows, even if we were to stand still, right? And that's the whole point of the, the sundial, was to show uh, mark time by the way the, the sun moved. And the shadow cast on the sundial uh, constantly moved. But with God the Father of lights, He doesn't move. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift His position or change His mind. He always remains the same. The Lord declares in Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord. I do not change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. This was the assurance <clears throat> gained from the fact that God can't be tempted. That God can't be tempted because it would mean that God could change. And if God is able to change, then surely we're all in trouble, having no hope or assurance about anything. But the Scriptures are clear on this. Again, God, because He's God, can't change. And because He can't change, it means His attributes will never change. And if God's attributes never change, then it means that He always and ever shall be good, and He always and ever shall be great and sovereign. And so these attributes certainly aren't opposed to one another. They can't be opposed to one another, because it would mean the character of God has changed. But friends, our comfort and assurance especially in the midst of trials and suffering, persecution and tragedy, is that God's goodness and His sovereignty never change. But they work together to bring about our good and God's glory in all things. Now this good, sovereign and unchangeable God then, is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. As we see in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Again, because God is perfectly and unchangeably good, He's the source of all good that we enjoy. Think about it. What good thing do you enjoy, from a pure good standpoint, what good thing do you enjoy that has not come to you, but by from the hand of God? Nothing. God has given you life. He's bestowed upon you the blessings of, <clears throat> of family and loved ones. He's provided you with the basic necessities that you need. Every good blessing that you can imagine has come to you from God's good hand. Again, we 
<clears throat> consider James' use of the term Father of Lights. God isn't only pure and perfect in and of Himself. He isn't only the Creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars, but He is our Creator and our God. And as Jesus assures us, if our faith and our hope is in Christ alone for salvation, well then God is also our Father, our Heavenly Father, our perfect Father who loves and cares for us deeply, even beyond what we could possibly imagine. And God is a perfectly good Father. Now as a father... I can testify to you that I'm well aware that human fathers are imperfect. We do change. We're inconsistent and at times we're very far from being good. And yet God is always a perfectly good Father who bestows on His children perfect and good gifts and this uh, continuously. Consider what Jesus says in, in Matthew 7 Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Oh, or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Of course, the implication here is that the Heavenly Father is perfect and righteous and holy and good and never fails. If we in our sinfulness can give good gifts to our children, certainly the Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us perfectly will give good gifts to us. He always will give us what is good. Now here's the hard part. And certainly where we need that godly wisdom. And that's God's goodness can even come to us even through the trials and the temptations that we face. Think about Job. Job is a great example of how this plays out. Remember, Satan had a particular plan and purpose for Job, as he does even for us when we face trials and temptation. Job, uh, Satan wants to use trials and temptations to destroy us, to lead us to sin. And ultimately to curse God. But of course God has a very different plan. A perfect unchangeable plan that because He's both good and sovereign will most certainly come about. Now granted it isn't always easy to see or understand God's good plan especially when we're in the midst of that suffering. But God's ultimate plan for our good and His glory is to make us more and more like Jesus. God, because He's good and all-powerful, is able to make, the, make use of the trials and temptations that we face to form and fashion us after the perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we, we considered this before earlier in James, like the fine metal being placed in a fiery furnace that refines it and makes it more uh, valuable. God allows difficult and hard providences in order to remove all the imperfections for us, from us. He chips away at our pride 
at our anger, at our greed, at our selfishness, our sinful lust. He chips away at all the idolatries of our hearts. Certainly, though it's not pleasant to endure that, but by God's grace we'll be able to trust Him and trust His good and perfect plan as we wait the final, finished, glorious perfection Perfection in Christ Jesus. And so we don't need to, to pit God's goodness against His sovereignty. Since He doesn't change, God will always do what's good for us. Even working out that good in those horrible times of suffering and trial. And of course, the greatest good that we could possibly enjoy in this life and even forever. We remember that God bestowed upon us as a gracious good gift of His sovereign will. And that gift, is, of course, is our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we see in, in verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So our good salvation comes from God. In verse 15, James spoke of a, of a double birth. <clears throat> Remember, we looked, looked at this last time. Lust giving birth to sin, and sin when it has reached maturity gives birth to death. So that death reigns in all, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here, James speaks of another birth. A more glorious birth. A birth leading to life everlasting. God graciously brings us forth to new and everlasting life. And the means of this birth is the word of truth, even the gospel. By believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're born again, not unto death, but unto life in Christ. The Apostle John testifies in 1 John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him, who begot also loves Him, who is begotten of Him. Being born of God, James likens us to, to first fruits. Now, first fruits are special to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were dedicated to God and considered to be holy. They were to be set apart for Him and dedicated to His service. And this included the first fruits of the firstborn of, of uh, the family, the, uh, of livestock, and the first produce harvested from the field, the vineyard, or the orchard. They were all dedicated to the Lord. And those who believe in the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation are considered first fruits. Believers. Believers in Christ are holy and set apart to God for His service. This is a good and honorable thing for us. And it brings glory to God. God's greatest good gift to us was sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to secure the salvation of undeserving sinners and setting them apart as His beloved children in Christ. But friends, we also see God's sovereignty at work in this very good gift of salvation. No, James doesn't say that we brought ourselves forth. We didn't harvest ourselves and then present ourselves to God declaring, look God, we're the best of the crop. 
That we're now somehow worthy to be called first fruits. No. Not at all. James says, of his own will. That is, God's will, according to his sovereign good pleasure, his plan, his purpose, in his grace, he brought us forth to be those first, fru- those first fruits. First, He brought us forth from the dust of the earth, creating us into living beings. But now, in Christ Jesus, because of His abounding goodness, those who were dead in sin are now brought forth to new and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And this is what John makes clear. John uh, chapter 1, verse 12, "...but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God." to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James saying the same thing that John is saying here at the beginning of John's Gospel. But it's even greater still. And all the more amazing in all this is that in securing our salvation we actually see the greatest example of God's unchangeable goodness and His sovereignty coming together, working for our good and His glory in the midst of the greatest evil to ever take place in the history of the world. The perfect, sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, was unjustly charged and condemned And He was painfully nailed to a cross. And He suffered not only public shame and humiliation, but He endured the just wrath and curse of God as He died the death of a common criminal. And this He did in the place of those who were enemies of God. In the place of godless sinners like you and me. But out of this great evil, According to God's predetermined plan and sovereign will, God brought our greatest good. The forgiveness of sins. Peace and reconciliation with God. And because Jesus rose from the dead after three days, He secured for us eternal life in the glorious presence of God where there's fullness of joy forever and ever and ever. Beloved of God, Be warned then. Don't be deceived or led astray. God is great. And God is good. Especially when we're in the midst of trials and temptations, we need to remember these important truths and these attributes of God. And we should thank Him. We should thank Him for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we should pray at that time for wisdom, grace, and strength so that we might trust and believe and cling to these things we know to be true. Because God has told us in His Word that they are true. God has revealed Himself to be good and to be great. And friends, if the unchangeable, most good, almighty, sovereign God is in control of all things, well then we can rest assured that our eternal good will come about and that God alone will certainly be glorified in us and through us. Let's pray.
Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this simple truth and yet an important reminder that you are good, that you are great, and that you never change. Father, these simple attributes that you reveal in your word hold so much comfort for us and so much promise as we live our lives in this fallen and sinful world, as we struggle and do daily do battle against the remnant of the sinful flesh that remains in us, as we're surrounded by other sinners, and as terrible things happen because of sin in the world. Life here is hard. And we don't have to tell you that because you know yourself, because Jesus Christ, your own beloved Son, came in the likeness of flesh and, and was tempted and tried in all ways that we are. He endured, endured the miseries and the sufferings of this life. And yet He never sinned. That He could be the perfect once for all sacrifice for our sins. And that the promises of Your Word can now be bestowed upon us who believe in Christ Jesus. And that You have revealed Yourself to be good and to be sovereign, all-powerful, and to be unchanging. Father, we just pray that you would help us to keep these simple truths at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Whatever trials we may be enduring now, whatever trials and suffering we may face in the future, that we remember these things, that you hold us fast, that you have our good and your glory in mind. And we trust you. We ask, Lord, that you would help our unbelief in this. That we would truly believe and trust. And that your name would be lifted up and glorified in and through our lives. Father, we just pray that you would impress these truths upon each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.